Well, I trust everybody had a good Thanksgiving holiday. I appreciate you coming out and want to give you a word of encouragement. Nobody knows that we're wearing our fat clothes but us. <laughs> Amen. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is um, writing the last letter that he writes to the churches. He's in, uh, he's in prison in Rome. Is uh, somewhere 60 to 62 A.D. Um, Jesus has uh, uh, been dead 27 to 28, 29 years, something like that, when Paul writes this letter. And uh, Paul will soon be released. Uh, well, we assume that soon. He will be released from prison in Rome. Uh, and then about two years later, he'll go back into prison and write his final letters uh, personal letters, letters that he wrote to Timothy and to Titus. Uh, Paul is um, writing the, the, the most grand of the letters that he wrote to the churches in the sense that this is not uh, doctrine point after point after, doctrinal point after point after point like it is with the Romans and, and uh, in some of the other letters. But he's taking an overview. He's backing up and taking a big picture view of here's what the church should look like in the world. And uh, it's a companion letter to the letter that he wrote to the Colossian church. The Colossians were uh, inundated or being uh, attacked uh, by some false doctrine, uh, the doctrine of worshiping angels and the, the, the organization of uh, spirit beings and stuff like that. Angels and demons has always been a hot topic, even back in Paul's day, apparently. And uh, he corrects the, uh, the wrong doctrine in the letter to the Colossians, but we know that it's a parallel letter or a companion letter. We know the Ephesian letter is a companion letter to the Colossians because he covers the same points, but he does it from a, from a different perspective. Rather than uh, like to the Colossians, he says, don't let anybody rob you of your reward by worshiping angels and stuff like that. In the, uh, in the Ephesian letter, he backs up and he just talks about the principalities and powers being under Jesus and Jesus' authority, Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father, far above principalities and powers and dominion and so forth. Um, Paul has masterfully, by the Holy Ghost, direction of the Holy Ghost, in the first three chapters, talked about who we are in Christ, the work of God's um, pl great plan of redemption that was ordained for before the foundations of the world, and uh, the fact that God has ordained for us to be recreated by the Spirit of God through the new birth so that He manifests, God manifests His wisdom, eternal wisdom, by our conquering the works of the devil. That's such an important point. So many times we try to figure out how are we going to glorify God. Well, the Bible tells you how God wants you to glorify Him, and that is by exercising authority over the devil so that you walk free from his bondage. That's what glorifies God. That's what glorified God in your life, and it's what's glor what glorifies God in the presence of the world. The world is supposed to see us operating in a different manner than they, the unsaved, operate. They are still under the authority of the devil, but we, the church, those that have been born again and walking in the knowledge of the Word, should be walking free from the chains of the enemy. Paul makes a transition in chapter 4. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. 
Anytime Paul uses the word therefore, or most of the times at least, Paul uses the word therefore, he's making a transition from doctrinal uh, ideas and precepts to practical application. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, if the book had ended at the end of chapter 3, we would have thought, what a wonderful plan God had, but how are we supposed to live up to that? What are we supposed to do now? Paul starts the what you're supposed to do now in chapter 4. And the first thing that he says is he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord again, not the prisoner of Rome. He says, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. I beseech you or encourage you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. There are nine times in the New Testament where the Bible tells us to walk according to something. It tells us to walk in the truth. It tells us to walk in the spirit. It tells us to walk by faith. It tells us to walk in love. It tells us to walk in newness of life. It tells us to walk honestly. It tells us to walk in good works. It tells us to walk in wisdom toward those that are without, meaning the unsaved. But here, Paul says, in the ninth one, Paul says, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's just talked about the vocation or that which we're called to, the high calling of God in the first three chapters. You're called to live the Jesus life here in the earth free from and exercising authority over the works of the devil. He says, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Folks, Jesus did not die for the church to drink their little wine and have their little margarita parties and go about their little pet things. He died for us to live the Jesus life. And if there's one thing that grieves the Holy Spirit, it's got to be when the church corporately and us as individuals, you and I are individuals of the church. But when we fail to live up to what he died and shed his blood for. So he says, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. You know, the Bible gives us a lot of specific things about what to do in specific situations, specific instructions about specific situations. But there's a lot of things also that the Bible doesn't tell us what to do when a situation arises. Well, what should, we, what should guide us in those cases? What, when it doesn't tell us specifically what to do, what should guide us? The precept and the principles of that which we're called to. And when, when I talk about being called to something, I'm talking about the calling of the life of God manifest in us. The power of God to defeat the works of the devil. That's what we ought to walk according to. Now, he tells us how to do that in verse 2. He says, with all lowliness... And meekness with long-suffering for bearing one another in love. He mentions four principles. First is loneliness or humility. You need to understand this, uh, uh, and, and I, I really didn't have a grasp on it until just here recently. This uh, trip that we took, this Journeys of Paul trip that we took last month, opened my eyes to a lot of things and made the New Testament come alive in a lot of ways that I'd never known before. Now, I've, I've read just about everything I can get my hands on about uh, well, anything related to the New Testament. But being in the, the places where Paul was writing to and in the, the very environment, it helped me understand, with seeing some of the relics and the archaeological finds and stuff, it helped me under, understand what being a pagan culture is. Idolatry never meant much to me. I mean, I heard Baptist preachers talking about TVs being idols. And so idolatry was, was a foreign concept to me. It was... Uh, um, well, let me say it this way. It was something I could only relate to from a Western mentality, which we don't know much of. Now, true and, and granted that people make idols out of anything and everything that there is. 
But that's not the idolatry that the Bible is talking about, that the New Testament is talking about. It is said that uh, Paul walking through, the, through Athens where he became grieved and, uh, and preached a sermon on Mars Hill, the thing that grieved him was that he walked down a street where there were 5,000 idols and temples. And, and when I say temples, I don't mean buildings. But sometimes they'd make just a shrine or a statue or something like that to a god. There were 5,000 of them. There was a boulevard where there were 5,000 idols set up on the street. I mean, you, it took you all day long if you were going to pay homage to all the gods. And that's what grieved him, and that's what he started talking about. And, and he even mentioned it his, in his uh, address on Mars Hill. He said, you guys are way too superstitious. Reverent to idols is literally what the word means. Reverent to demons is literally what the word means. You guys are way too superstitious. You revere demons, and you've even got a, 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 an idol or a statue out there to the unknown God. In case you miss somebody, you want to put another one out there. Because they had gods for everything. Well, as a result, there were a lot of characteristics, human characteristics that were frowned upon that the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, encouraged people to, 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 uh, to have. One was humility. In the ancient world, the Roman world that Paul was writing to, it was very, very in, uh, frowned upon. It was... Well, you were thought to be a, a less than a, a real person if you were humble. Humility was something that wasn't, uh, wasn't considered to be manly. It wasn't considered to be appropriate. Everybody was boastful. Everybody was assertive. Yet the Bible says, Old Testament and New Testament, that God gives grace or favors the humble. Well, that was com- uh, uncommon in any part of the world. But notice that Paul says one of the ways to walk worthy of the Lord is to be humble, to have humility. In other words, well, we've seen this even in our, in our day in the last 15 years, I guess. There was, uh, there was this push about assert yourself, assert yourself. Well, what did that bring us? Bart Simpson. It created a culture, it created an atmosphere where everybody is pushing themselves forward, where everybody becomes crass, becomes um, immoral. It, it, all these things are tied in together, and it all comes back to the put yourself out there. Don't take a back seat to anybody. Folks, that's the beginning of pride. That's step one to pride. It's exactly the way that the devil operates. He operated this way in their day the day of the New Testament, and he operates the same today. So he says one of the principles that you're going to have to uh, develop in your life to walk worthy of the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for you is you're going to have to develop humility. Don't put yourself forward. Let God exalt you. One thing about it, if you exalt yourself, you leave no room for God to do any work. But if you refuse to exalt yourself, you give God all kinds of room to work. Second one he mentions is meekness. Now, meekness is not some stand in the corner and hope nobody notices you type attitude. Meekness just simply means teachable. It's amazing to me how few people are teachable. And I think that has to do a lot with, with the, the society and the culture that we live in. Because a lot of people, where, whether it be from embarrassment, they don't want to admit that uh, somebody knows more than them or insecurity or whatever the case is. So many people just refuse to be taught. 
Well, what hope there is there for you if you can't be taught any more than you know now? I mean, it's not like things are going so great for you now, is it? It's not like you don't need help. But so few people are willing to accept the help. And the only real help that can ever make a difference in somebody's life is the word. So he's talking about being teachable, specifically being teachable by God's word. The next thing that he mentions is uh, long-suffering. The word long-suffering is the word patience. It just means to be patient with people. It means to be able to be willing to put up with things, circumstances, people, situations that aren't the way that you want them to be. Again, it comes back down to not putting yourself forward, folks. Because if you, if you think about it, road rage on the, the streets and all this kind of stuff, if you, if you think about how silly that is, the idea, the concept is somebody cut me off driving down the road. Well, goodness gracious, they just noted, they knew it was you by the recognizing your car, didn't they? But that's what we think. We think, how could this guy do this to me? Well, he probably did it to 10 people before you. What's so special about you? Why is it that we think that nothing is supposed to happen to us? Why is it that we think that everything is always supposed to go our way and when it doesn't, we're supposed to throw a fit? If that's the society that we live in. The last principle he mentions is forbearance. Forbearance is a real interesting word in the Greek because it means to stand your ground. It means to stand your ground. And notice what he said. He said these four principles with humility, meekness, long-suffering, patience, which is patience, And the last one, he says, forbearance, standing your ground in love. Standing your ground in love. Now, folks, the church is facing a real test in this this specific area in these days. It's a a very important, very critical time for the body of Christ. And to stand your ground in love means to hold on to the truth no matter what. Well, what would try to pull us away from the truth? Attitudes and opinions of others in many cases for example i love everybody that jesus died for but homosexuality is still a sin the church is facing that test right now and so much of the church is willing to give up on the truth they're willing not to stand their ground based on what the word says because they're being accused of being judgmental or intolerant or whatever other word somebody wants to use I'm not being racist when I say all lives matter. But many of the churches and many Christians are caving on these points because these are the hot button topics and nobody wants to be thought of as something that goes against the crowd. I'm not being intolerant when I tell you that Islam is not a religion of peace. And I'm never going to change my position on any of these things. Well, do improvements need to be made? Do changes need to be made? Well, sure, but that doesn't change the truth. Changes are always going to be made and things can always be better in this world that we live in because this world is being governed by the God of this world who's the devil. So there are always going to be things that that need to change. There are always going to be things that can be improved, but that doesn't change the truth. Sin doesn't stop being sin because somebody wants something in their life. Sin doesn't stop being sin because somebody tries to find a way to justify what they want to do. So this is the work of the church. The work of the church is to stand its ground in love. Now, when you say things like that, I I get notes and and letters and stuff like that. People will say, well, Pastor Mike, you're saying that gays aren't welcome in your church. Well, sure they are. 
Of course they are. But they're going to hear the truth when they're here. And if they want the truth, it'll change their lifestyle. Now, if they don't want the truth, if they're just looking for somebody to tell them that what they're doing and what they want to do and the sin that they're living in is okay, this is probably not the place they want to be. But don't worry, there's a lot of other churches that are available. But Paul said that our work is to stand our ground in love. The idea that you're not walking in love because you disagree with somebody or hold fast to what the Bible says is true is just a joke. And that's the work of the church. If the Holy Ghost is telling Paul, is speaking through Paul the truth. So Paul says, with all lowliness, humility, and meekness, teachableness, with long-suffering or patience, standing your ground with one another in love, endeavoring. The word endeavoring means to work hard at. Working hard at keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's a, a great misunderstanding in the body of Christ about the work, what the work of the church is. The work of the church is not for us to all come together and agree on doctrine. The work of the church is for us to be united in the faith or in the Spirit of God, rather. We're to be united in the fact that God has made us all one body. We're never going to agree. The church is never going to agree on doctrine until we get to heaven and Jesus judges us. Then everybody will find out I was right. (laughs) Mostly, at least. But we're not going to agree on doctrine while we're here. And to to try to come to the place where we won't fellowship or we won't have anything to do with people that disagree with us on doctrine, that's just ridiculous. For the Baptists to be against the Methodists because they disagree on how to baptize one another is just stupid. For the Pentecostals to disagree or, or fel- refuse to fellowship with the Baptists because they don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that's crazy. Everybody's not going to agree. It's never going to happen. Well, what should we do? We should recognize that we're all part of the same body. That Jesus died for one of us just like he died for the others. And even though somebody may not know what we know about doctrine or maybe we don't know something somebody else knows and has found out about the truth of the word is no reason to stop being family members. Well, some family members are easy to be around and some are not. Holidays are a good time to be reminded of that. And you know what it's like to be after at a family gathering. It's so good to see everybody and I'm so good we're going home. So glad we're going home. Well, sometimes that's the way it is with believers, but you don't stop being family. And that's the whole point that he's saying. He's saying that to develop these characteristics will enable us, even though it's hard work, will enable us to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Peace should be the the hallmark of the church. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. Verses 4, 5, and 6 talk about God, the Father, the Holy Spirit and Jesus the Son as being something that we all have in common. Verse 4 again, here's the Spirit of God. It says there is one body and one Spirit even as you're called in one hope of your calling. What that very simply means is that um, the Holy Spirit makes us all one body. The next verse, verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It says Jesus gives us all one faith. Now faith can be used specifically or generally and Paul is writing generally. Please remember that Paul did not write to theologians. Paul is not writing letters 
with the ideas that, 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 that everybody is, is a Bible scholar and they're going to split hairs and, and slice and dice the word like we do today. That's not who he wrote to. He wrote to people that were commoners. He wrote to people that would understand what he's writing. And so whereas the Holy Ghost gave him the, uh, the well, he, he may not have even, have even known what he was doing in every, every respect. But the Holy Ghost inspired him to write things that we can now take apart and see things that perhaps they didn't see at the time, maybe even see things that Paul didn't even uh, recognize that he was writing at the time. We can see those things, but that's not the general purpose for what Paul wrote. I think a lot of times we miss the meaning of things because we try to get too technical about what's being said or how it's being said. It's great to know some of the Greek words in the Greek language, but Paul didn't write this or the Holy Ghost didn't have this written or transcribed, translated into other languages to leave out all of those that, uh, that don't know the Greek. Greek can sometimes help you, but Greek can sometimes confuse you too. Because no matter what language you pick, the concepts and ideas of God and heaven are difficult to communicate in earthly terms. So he's saying one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And when he says one baptism, here's where the theologians would get involved. Well, one baptism, does that mean baptism in the spirit? Does that mean baptism in water? Well, Paul is writing to people who have had to change their lives, transform their lives because of their faith in Jesus. When he says one baptism, they're probably thinking about their own experience. Because in this world that they're living in, the world that the, the, it was written to, the baptisms were a very public show. And in many cases, they're having to turn their backs on one thing in order to, to join themselves to the Lord through water baptism. So they're probably thinking about their own experience. Now, the one baptism that he's talking about is the work of the Holy Ghost that's illustrated through water baptism. Because for us, water baptism is kind of a convenience. It's a choice. People choose, well, yeah, I got saved 30 years ago, but I've never been baptized, so I'll get baptized now. That didn't happen in, this, in Paul's day. If somebody accepted Jesus, they immediately became baptized because the water baptism ceremony was what everybody recognized as marking somebody's life for Jesus. So when Paul talks about baptism, when, when the Bible speaks of water baptism, it means something totally different than what we experience today. It was a huge deal, especially for the Jews. For the Jews to baptize, be baptized in water in the name of Jesus, it means they're turning their back on Moses and the law. And so that ostracized them from their, their families in many cases. It disinherited them in many other cases. It was a huge, huge deal. So here it says, Jesus gives us one faith. We believe one thing. Now, you know as well as I do that churches, denominations, believe different things. But we all center on one thing, and that is Jesus died for our sins. And that's what he's talking about. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Then the next verse he speaks of in verse 6 is talking about God the Father. Verse 4 was the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 is Jesus. Verse 6 is God the Father. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. You see, Paul was from the south. <laughs> Must have been South Tarsus. So Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, and here's something else that was used by the Spirit of God many, many years later. In the second century, there was a, a heretic that drew a lot of people away for, to himself by claiming the God of the Old Testament was a different God 
than the New Testament. The, the creator of the universe of the Old Testament was a different God of grace in the New Testament. Well, the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says there's one God who's above all and in all or through all and in you all. In you all who means who? Means believers. Means the church. The idea that God's in everybody is wrong. He's not. God created everybody. But God is only in and living and dwelling in those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives. So these are the things that he's talking about that we have in common as believers. Those things that the Spirit of God has done in us. Those things that Jesus has done in us. And those things that God the Father has done in us. But then in verse 7 he starts talking about how we're different. Now we're, again the whole point is walk worthy of the vocation that you're called to. Walk worthy of the life of God that you've been recreated by. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith. He's going to quote the Old Testament. Psalm 68 verse 18. Wherefore he saith. When he ascended up on high. He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now this is a little different. Paul quotes it a little bit differently than both the, uh, the Hebrew text and the Septuagint. Which is the Greek. Uh, the Hebrew translated into the Greek. The Septuagint was the Bible of Jesus' day. In both the Hebrew and the Greek, it, uh, or the Hebrew and the Septuagint, it reads a little differently. Instead of saying, wherefore he gave gifts unto men, it says, wherefore he received gifts for men. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's two schools of thought. One school of thought is that Jesus, in Colossians 2.15, says Jesus spoiled principalities and made an open show of them. The, the, uh, the principle in the old days, Paul's day, the days of the Roman Empire, was when an enemy king or enemy army was conquered, then the victorious king, in most cases Caesar, would parade through town all of the captives that he took from the enemy armies and things like that, and everybody would bestow blessings and great things on him. Now, if it was a general that did this, presenting the spoils to Caesar, then Caesar would then give back to the general, the commander of the army, gifts and and many of the slaves or whatever the case was, he would bestow gifts upon him as the, the victorious, uh, as the victor in the army, the victor of the battle. Well, that could be the, what this is saying. If that's the case, then it's saying that God gave Jesus gifts for men because of his defeating the work of the devil. But Paul seems to indicate in the next two verses, talking about Jesus having ascended from the depths of hell, he seems to be referring to the, the second school of thought, which is Jesus brought those that were bound in paradise, which is also called Abraham's bosom in the New Testament. He brought those that could not stand before God because the new birth had not yet been accomplished. But when Jesus defeated the work of the devil and the work of redemption was finished, he went to the, those Old Testament saints in Abraham's bosom or paradise, and he told them, he revealed to them that he was the one that they were looking for to come. He may not have had to reveal that at all. They may have been in a position to see everything in the lower parts of the earth that was going on. We see a little bit of a hint there when the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 16 about the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It says that the rich man looked over into paradise and saw Lazarus. Well, if that's the case, he called out, to, that was the case, and when he called out to Abraham, he said, Father Abraham, have Lazarus come and dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I, uh, and put it, dip it, touch it to my tongue, for I'm tormented by this flame. It's possible that, that you could see between those two compartments. 
those two places. One was the place of the dead, hell or or Hades or Sheol. One's Greek, one's Hebrew. And paradise or Abraham's bosom. In other words, the Old Testament saints might have been able to look over to where the place of the spiritually dead was. They weren't spiritually dead. They were spiritually, uh, they weren't yet alive in spirit because they couldn't be, uh, that couldn't take place until Jesus was, had finished the work of redemption. But it was possible that they could see back and forth from those two areas or parts of, uh, of the, uh, the underworld, if you will, even though you couldn't travel from one to the other. Regardless, when Jesus spoiled principalities and powers and finished the work of redemption, he went to that place of paradise, Abraham's bosom, and brought all those that were there waiting for the Messiah to come and took them into heaven with him. The reason that that that's the probability for how this should be interpreted is verses 9 and 10. And notice Paul is speaking parenthetically. It puts it in parentheses in the in the uh, uh, King James, and I think it's right. Now, he that ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts. Notice parts is plural. He didn't say he descended into the lower part of the earth. Now, we know from the scripture that there's two parts of the lower part of the earth. One is the place of the spiritually dead, and the other was the place of paradise. It says Jesus went both places. See, some people want to say that when Jesus was on the cross and he said to the thief, uh, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Some people want to say, well, see, Jesus just went to paradise. But there's no punctuation. Jesus probably was saying, uh, according to the scripture, Jesus had to be saying, I say unto you today, period, or comma, you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say, and I'm going to paradise today. He's saying, I'm saying today that you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus went to the lower parts of the earth, which means he did go to paradise. That's where he took those that were captive, the Old Testament saints, and brought them to heaven with him. But if it's lower parts, then that would also include the place of the spiritually dead. Now that's tough for some people to accept because they don't want to think of Jesus, who was the Son of God, being able to die spiritually. But if he didn't die spiritually and spiritual death is the price for sin, then somebody still owes your price. It's only if Jesus paid the price for the spiritually dead And there's only one way he could do that, and that is dying the death of the spiritually dead. If he didn't do that, then somebody still has to do that for you to make it to heaven. Thank God he did. So he said, now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. The point that Paul is making is very simply this. Jesus went from the lowest point to the highest point. From the lowest point of hell to the highest place in heaven. For what purpose? Well, back to verse 8. He gave gifts unto men. He gave gifts unto men. Jesus, from this highest point, after being in the lowest part of hell, went to the highest part, was raised to the highest part of heaven, where he gave gifts unto men. Verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. The word and is not in verse 11. It's he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastor teachers. It's a hyphenated word. Paul made up a word by the direction of the Holy Ghost to tell us the ministry gifts. Now, here's an area that's under much debate in our present day church. 
And really it's just in the Word of Faith camp because the, the Baptists don't have teachers. The Methodists don't have teachers. Pentecostals are really the only ones that have traveling teachers. And so there's a great desire on the part of some, those that are traveling teachers, to be a five-fold ministry gift. But Paul really speaks of four offices. Apostles, the word apostle means sent ones. Prophet, those that speak for God. Evangelists, those whose message is the good news of Jesus. Salvation only. Salvation only meaning that's their only message is salvation. And third and fourth, the fourth office that he mentions is pastor teachers. Now, Paul, by the Holy Ghost, is putting a great emphasis on teaching in the local church. We understand pastors are not church-wide in the sense that somebody is a pastor over the whole church body. That's Jesus. He's the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. We understand that pastors are for the local congregations. And notice the importance of the connection that he makes between teaching and the, and the pastor of the local church. Now, Paul is the one that wrote Romans. Paul is the one that wrote the first letter to the Corinthians. In Romans chapter 12, he talks about other gifts that are given unto men. He talks about other grace gifts or graces that are given unto to mankind, individuals that equip them for service, to stand, in the, the, to stand in the place that God has for them in the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 28, it says God set in the church and mentions apostles, prophets, miracles, healings, gifts of healings, and um, uh, governments, diversities of tongues and helps and, and other things. So this is not a, 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 an all-inclusive or all-encompassing list that Paul gives us here in Ephesians chapter 4. We know that some people are given to exhortation. Some pastors are given to exhortation. They're exhorters. That means they're encouragers. You've got most of the bigger or the larger churches in America today are pastored by encouragers. We call them preachers, but they're, but they're really exhorters. Because what they do is they tell you, you can make it. You look at all the, the best-selling uh, Christian books and so forth. They're all about, you can, you can do it, live your best life, whatever the other titles are. They're all about the same thing. It's all exhortation. Notice that Paul did not say that God said in the church, exhorter teachers or pastor exhorters. He said pastor teachers. Notice he didn't say that God said in the church, pastor evangelists. Yet you've got a lot of churches that are built on evangelism because that's what the pastor is given to. The point is very simply this. If the church is going to grow, and that's Paul's whole point, if we're going to walk worthy of the vocation to which we're called, the life of God that we've been recreated by, we're going to have to grow spiritually. We're going to have to grow spiritually. That's his whole theme in chapter 4 is growing up spiritually. If you're going to grow spiritually, it's one thing that's going to do it and only one thing, and that's the teaching of the Word. I have great concern for some of the large churches in America when the trouble that's coming comes because they're built on exhortation. What about the churches that are built on evangelism? They're in trouble because it's the teaching of the Word that makes you steady and stable. And nothing else will. Well, Pastor Mike, are you saying that just because you're a teacher... That your church is, is, is the way that it ought to be or that you're in a better position or, or have a greater office than they do. No, I'm not saying that at all, folks. I'm saying I'm wondering how it's going to work because nothing can take the place of the word in somebody's life. 
I just can't. Prayer is wonderful. Some churches are built on prayer. Prayer is wonderful, but prayer can't take the place of the Word. Just can't do it. Brother Hagin used to use the example uh, or the illustration that prayer is like breathing and, and the Word of God is like eating food. Which is more important? Well, you can't do without either one, can you? Well, we're, gonna, we're just, Jesus said, my house is a house of prayer. We're just going to build our church on prayer. Well, what are you going to eat? Without the Word of God, there's nothing to feed on. You'll grow weak spiritually. Many people feed just on the Word, which is good, but then they don't give themselves to anything else. So instead of being strong, they're doing without the praying, the breathing, and some of the other things that are similar to other bodily functions. And as a result, they become argumentative. Well, that's not right either. But God, Jesus gave us gifts. And these four gifts are apostles, sent ones, prophets, those who speak for God, evangelists, those whose message is Jesus dying on the cross, crucified on the cross and risen from the dead. And then the fourth office, he says, are pastor teachers. Pastor teachers. Another thing that he said writing to Timothy, Paul wrote, wrote to Timothy several years later, and he wrote um, about the office of bishop. He said, if anybody desires the office of a bishop, the word bishop means overseer. There's only one ministry office that that could correspond to, and that's pastor. He said, if anybody offers, uh, desires the office of a bishop, they desire a good thing. Then he mentioned certain qualifications. One of them is apt to teach. Apt to teach. Here's the second time that Paul says pastors should be able to teach. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that because somebody may not have a gift of teaching, they can't be a good pastor. Brother Hagin said one of the best pastors he ever knew in his ministry couldn't teach a lick. He was an exhorter, but he recognized the value of teaching, so he had a strong teaching uh, core of people in the church that could do the work. Well, that's fine. The, the important thing is the, the body of Christ has to have the word to mature. Nothing can take the place of that. That's one of the reasons why it's, um, well, how do I say this? I don't want to put somebody else down and, and make this sound wrong. But I have, a, I have a real problem with some of the fluff of church. Because as far as I'm concerned, we're here for one, re- one reason, one purpose, and that's to hear the word. Well, my attitude makes up about 2% of the population. So 98% of the people disagree with me. That's not news. I'm used to to that. But my whole purpose, everything about the way that I'm made, everything about the way that God uses me is to teach the Word because the Word will make you strong. I don't know why anybody wouldn't want that, but not everybody does. But from my mindset, that's the most important thing you can have. Paul seems to agree to a certain point at least. He says teaching is of the utmost importance. And it's a gift that God gave the church. Folks, we need to realize that when you're in trouble, you can rely on the work that God has given, the gifts that God has given to the church to help give you the information you need to be able to come out of your trouble. I think too many times we take things for granted. We just assume that because God's given somebody a gift, it's going to work whether or not. And that's not the way it works. I'm very much aware sometimes of a greater pull that people have on me 
and it draws things out of me that I didn't intend to say. And I've found that in most cases, it's because somebody's really in trouble and they've really reached out to God. They're praying during the week, oh, Father, you've got to help me. Help me. Give me the answer that I need. Show me how I can get out of this problem. And then they'll come to church and something will come out of me that I had no intention of saying. And they'll come up afterward and say, Pastor Mike, I've been struggling so hard. And you said just the right thing. And they're thinking somehow that I had some kind of foreknowledge or some kind of special thing from God to give them their answer. Well, what was special is they called out to God and put a draw on what's given to the church. I wish people had an understanding how this works. It'd make it a lot easier for me and better for you if you'd pray before you come. It's just the way it works. There are times where I've come ready, just raring to go. Knew I had the message for the hour. Get to church and nobody here cares a lick. And my words make it just about to the edge of the carpet right there. Just like everything just falls, just like that. Everybody's yawning, looking at the watches. thinking, Lord, I know this ain't me. I prepared. Well, if it's not me, if I did the same preparation that I always do, wouldn't get different results, then what's the difference? The pull on the people. I wish you would understand that this is how this works. You'll get more, and church will go shorter for you. (laughs) It won't seem like near as long. (laughs) Verse 12, what did he give these gifts for? Verse 12, for the perfecting. The word perfecting means equip. For the perfecting or the equipping of the saints. My job is to equip you. My job is not to do your job. My job is to equip you for what purpose? To do the work of the ministry. To do the work of the ministry. Who's supposed to do the work of the ministry? Me? You. Well, Pastor Mike, how are we supposed to do that? I'm supposed to equip you to do it. What's going to happen if you do the work of the ministry? The edifying of the body of Christ will result. The word edify means to build up. You know the reason why the church is in such a sorry state? Because the church body as a, as a whole is waiting for the pastor and the, and the ministers to do all the work. There are people that you can reach that will never come to hear me. There are people that you can reach and people you sit next to every day at work that will never turn on the TV to hear our program. The very fact that I am a pastor disqualifies a lot of people from ever being willing to hear what word I have to say. But they will listen to you because they know you. My job is to equip you so that you can reach them. What happens when you reach them? The body of Christ is built up. People are added to the Lord daily such as should be saved. I think one of the greatest advantages, one of the greatest exercises of wisdom that God has ever done is when he's had men start churches rather than being called to take over churches. Because I was here before you were. I'm not subject to a church board. And some people freak out about that. Oh, well, church governments, you need the pastor under the control of the church board. Yeah, that always works out real well, doesn't it? 
got a ministry gift controlled by laymen who don't want to do the work. They're, they think their job is to get the pastor to do all the work and the church will succeed. The church only succeeds in the way that God intended for it to do when the people do the work. I'm doing my job by equipping you. The question is, are you doing your job? That's what Paul started off with in verse 7. He says, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Notice he said every one of us. He didn't say only those that are called to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He said every one of us is given a place in the body of Christ. Well, what's your place? Well, if it's not one of the four offices that he mentioned in verse 11, then it must be to be perfected or equipped to do the work of the ministry so that the church is built up. Folks, I've got the greatest job in the world. My job is to equip you to do the work. And you've got the greatest job in the world because there's nothing like reaching somebody with the good news of Jesus. How long are we supposed to do this? Verse 13, till we all come into the unity of the faith. Now, I want you to notice in verse 3, he said we're supposed to work hard to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, in verse 13, he says, these ministry gifts will operate in the way that it's described till we all come into the unity of the faith. When is that? When we stand before Jesus. See, I'm not going to be a pastor in heaven. There won't be any apostles in heaven. There'll be people that were apostles. But nobody's going to be an apostle in heaven. Nobody's going to be a prophet in heaven. Nobody's going to be an evangelist in heaven. Who would you get saved in heaven? Nobody's going to be a pastor and or a teacher in heaven. Those are ministry gifts that are given here. The function of the church or the body of Christ or the family of God will change dramatically when we get to heaven. There'll be a whole new purpose. I don't even have any idea what that purpose is going to be. But the Bible says it'll take ages for God to show us. But these things are going to operate for as long as the church is, is, is in operation here on the earth. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. That will take place when we stand before Jesus. And in those things that we wondered about, we'll see, we'll see them clearly and say, oh, wow, that was simple. We should have seen that all along. Things that we were wrong about, we'll say, Lord, we were wrong. We Forgive us. Our hearts were right, but our heads were wrong. Things we didn't know will be known. Things that we thought we knew and were wrong about will be corrected. When we stand before Jesus and we see as we are seen and know him as he knows us. So what's he saying? He's saying these gifts are given for this present age. Now some people say that there's no more apostles today. If that's the case, then Peter, uh, then Paul didn't know that when the Holy Ghost inspired him to write. Or I guess we could say the Holy Ghost was wrong. Which means there are apostles today, there are prophets today, there are evangelists today, and certainly there are pastors and teachers today. Till we all come to the unity of the faith, what's going to cause that? And of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect, the word perfect means mature or wholehearted man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now I believe also that that means that that's not going to take place until we stand before Jesus and receive our redeemed bodies. But that doesn't mean we can't strive to be closer and closer to that every day of our lives, does it? And what's going to bring that about? The knowledge of the Son of God. Where are we going to gain that knowledge? Through the Word. Through the word. Notice the place that the word holds in maturing. Spiritual maturity. 
It's the only thing that Paul identifies as bringing us to spiritual maturity. Now, there are other important things, surely. As we said, prayer is a wonderful thing. It's wonderfully important. It's communicating with God. But it doesn't say it makes you more mature. Does that mean we ought to forget that? Certainly not. And the guy that's writing this, remember Paul said to the Corinthians, I speak in tongues more than all of you. And Paul is the one that understood what speaking in tongues was about. He that speaks in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men but unto God. Howbeit in the spirit he speaks mysteries. He knew that he was communicating with God all the time that he was speaking in tongues. But Paul never says speaking in tongues will cause you to grow up or mature in Christ. Never. What does? The knowledge of the word. The knowledge of Jesus through the word. Till we all come into the unity of faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or a mature man. Under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14. That. Here's what that growth process. That maturity process is supposed to do. That we henceforth be no more children. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. By the slight of men and cunning craftiness. Whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The first thing. The major thing that he identifies that spiritual maturity does will bring is that it brings stability into your life. It makes you stable. It makes you stable. Let me read to you a verse in Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah 33 verse 6. The Old Testament says something about this that's real important. Isaiah 33, verse 6. Listen to this. It says, And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and and strength of salvation. Wisdom and knowledge is your stability in the times that you live in and the strength of your salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. So notice that Paul is talking about the place that the word of God holds in making you mature, bringing you into spiritual maturity. Because Paul doesn't want you, and he's inspired by the Holy Ghost to write this. We could say the Holy Ghost doesn't want you carried about with every wind of doctrine. Now notice it doesn't say carried about with every wind of religious doctrine. See, there's a lot of wrong doctrines in the world. A lot of political doctrines that people are carried away by. A lot of social doctrines that people are carried away by. What holds us steady? There's only one thing, and that's the knowledge of the Word. I've got pastor friends that are freaking out as what's happening with society. Gay marriage. How are we going to handle gay marriage? What are we supposed to do? What's happening with the country? What's going to be left after Obama's finished? And dear Lord, what if Hillary gets elected? What's our country going to look like? Folks, I don't have the answers to any of those things. I've got things that I think I know by the Holy Ghost, but I don't have freedom to tell you. But whatever things turn out to be, God doesn't change. His word doesn't change. And the purpose of the church in the world is going to be the same. So you better put your hope and your trust and your efforts into the things of God rather than the things of the world. Because the one thing that the Bible does tell us is that men will get worse and worse. It doesn't say men will get worse and worse and then we'll have a savior. A Republican will come in and save the day. It says men will get worse and worse. And folks, don't think gay marriage is going to be the final issue. Paul said in the last days, people will forbid to marry. He didn't say gay marriage will be the issues. 
He said that forbidding marriage will be the issue. We still got a ways to go. I can see the progression of these things when marriage means nothing because people are trying to marry their dogs or 32 cats or 12 people or, you know, groups or whatever. Then marriage will lose its value. And people say, what's the point? Let's just forget about marriage altogether. I think we're on the road to that now. But what are we going to do when these things happen? What are we going to do if they take away our guns? Well, come get mine. <laughs> I dare you. Now, what are we going to do? What, if they change the Second Amendment, what are we going to do? Well, what are we going to do? We're going to stop being Christians? We're going to start a war? What are we going to do? I'm going to live by the word. Folks, the name of Jesus doesn't work only as long as we've got guns. The name of Jesus is the same whether it's a Second Amendment Amendment or not. But Pastor Mike, our, our rights are being eroded. Yeah, that's what the devil does. He puts you under bondage. He tries to control your life. Why would the system that he's the God of be any different? It's the way that it works. I've got pastor friends that are freaking out all over the country. What's next? What's next? We've got to get involved. Let's get involved politically. Let's get Trump in there. Let's get Ted Cruz in there. Let's get this one or that one in there. The Bible's still true. Men are still going to get worse and worse, no matter who's elected. But Pastor Mike, Hillary is lying. Well, that's nothing new. (laughs) We can't have her as the next president. We may very well. There's a lot of people that are saying we need a woman. I guess any woman will do. (laughs) But the Bible's true no matter who or what. That's why the word's important. That would be be, be henceforth no more children. The word children means one not able to speak. It means young child. One not able to speak. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby the lion wait to deceive. These wrong doctrines that are out there, whether they're political doctrines, social doctrines, or religious wrong doctrines, what's the source or the cause behind them all? Somebody's trying to gain. Somebody's trying to profit. Somebody's profiting from this Black Lives Matters protest stuff. Somebody's profiting from the political situation that's taking place with the Syrian refugees and, and uh, the influx of Muslims coming into the country. Somebody's profiting. It's always a place to look, folks. It's always a place to identify. That's what the Bible said this is all about. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But, here's the answer, here's the work of the church. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, all things, all things. That means political things, doesn't it? That means social things, doesn't it? All things is all things. But speaking the truth in love, you can't speak the truth if you don't know the truth. If you don't have the knowledge of the words, you can't speak it, you can't stand upon it, you can't exercise your faith toward it, can you? But speaking the truth in love 
may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting thing about this word speaking because it does not just mean talk. It does not just mean your voice. This word speaking means to deal with. It includes speaking, but it means to live the truth. Not just talk the truth, not just speak the word, not just have the right confession. It means to live the truth. The key to maturity is not just say the right things, but live the truth in love. Now, the fact that he says that we should speak or live, deal with the word, or live the word in truth, or live the truth in love, indicates to us that you can live the truth and not be operating in love. That won't work. But you got a lot of people that seem to be trying to do that. And did you notice that this whole thing is about unity? Did you notice that everything about the work of the church is unity? Think about it like this. How many times do we see people that pull away and they go their own direction, they pull away from churches and they isolate themselves and they start feeding on the Word? What's their motivation behind that? I've never seen a situation yet that somebody didn't think themselves more spiritually mature than everybody else when they took that route. In other words... They think disunity, separation, isolation is the way to spiritual maturity. Paul's saying otherwise. Paul's saying the highest place of spiritual maturity is right in the middle of, right in the middle of other believers. Right in the middle of other believers. Now, where are those other believers going to be? They're going to be at different levels on the, on the scale. Some are going to be mature too. Some are going to be immature. Some are going to be dominated by their flesh. Some are going to be sincere but keep stumbling. Some are going to be what the mature ones call hypocrites. Yet the key to spiritual maturity is to grow in God right in the middle of everybody else's problems. Not separated or isolated. Not fed up with the church. The popular saying is, I'm not a fan of organized religion. I'm not a fan of organized religion either, but I am a fan of Christianity. Which means you've got to be a fan of the church. Because the church is what God established. Speaking the truth in love may grow up into him. Speaking the truth in love. Again, I like the fact that the word means living the truth. Living the truth in love may grow up into him. Living the truth in love may grow up into him. In all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom, verse 16, we'll stop here. Verse 16, from whom, from Jesus, the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. What does that mean? Well, the Bible is just talked about as being like a body. God gave gifts unto men to equip the body. The body is made up of bones. How do bones join together? How do bones connect to one another? A bone doesn't connect to another bone. It has to have a joint in between. What's the joint? The joint of the gifts that he gave to men in verse 11. In other words, he's saying the work of the ministry gifts identified in verse 11 is what joins the body of Christ together so that everybody is able to work effectively in the manner in which God designed for them to operate. It comes from the supply of the joints. To connect the bones so that the body works right. 
Can you see what he's saying? Paul's saying this is how the church fits together. From whom, from Jesus, or through him, the whole body fitly joined together. God knows what he's doing when he made you the way that he made you. He knew what he was doing when he gave you the gift that he gave you to, to operate in. That gift doesn't work independently of everybody else. It works with others through the, the working of the connecting of the joints. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted. Compacted means it ties us together. It literally means to force together. In other words, the work of the church is to bring people together, not separate them. The work of spiritual maturity is to draw you closer together with other believers, not further away. Anybody that's growing and maturing in God is getting closer to other believers, not further away. No matter what they seem to claim or think. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint or ministry gift supplies. According to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Every part. That means your part and my part together. Effectual working of every part making increase of the body. The way the body increases is you do your part and I do my part. What's my part? To equip you. What's your part? To do the work of the ministry. To reach others. What happens? Making increase of the body in the edifying unto the edifying of itself. Notice the last two words, in love. In love. Now, folks, I want you to understand what God's attitude about this is. God's attitude is the church is supposed to draw in closer and closer and closer to one another. That we're going to be ruled by peace and operating in love. As we become a tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter knit group of people. That's God's intent. That's God's plan for his family. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are unconcerned when your kids fight? You don't want your kids fighting, do you? Especially if it becomes a major issue and it becomes a protracted thing. There are families that are split up all over the country. Families that won't get together on holidays. Families that won't get together in fellowship with one another because this one did that to somebody else and things become a mess. Maybe money issues, maybe relationship issues, maybe lifestyle issues, maybe anything or everything that you can think of. But we all get concerned when our family members don't get along. Where do you think we get that from? Where do you think we get that from? Somebody might say, well, it's just, it's just a part of the way we're made. Well, who made you? If we're that way, how do you think God feels about it? How do you think God feels when his family is at war with, with other family members? Especially when you see that God's intent is to bring everybody closer together, tighter and tighter and tighter. The work of the ministry, gifts, is to, supposed to, to bring us tight, more tightly knit together than anything else so that we can work together. Any of you ever had a dislocated bone? It doesn't work real well, does it? Because it's dislocated. It's pulled out of its place. 
I believe one of the things that's going to happen in the last days with at least part of the church, maybe not the church world as a whole, but at least part of the church is that the church is going to start working together. At least in a measure of what God intended for us to do. You see some of the greatest successes in the book of Acts before they started fighting among themselves. Once that took place, a lot of the signs and wonders and miracles stopped. This is the key to spiritual maturity. To live the truth in love. That's what the world's going to see that separates us from, the, from them. That's the way the, church, the world is going to see Jesus in the church. It's the only way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for who you've made us to be. Thank you that you've caused us to be born again, recreated with your life for the purpose of manifesting your wisdom, the authority of the name of Jesus given unto us, under principalities and powers. Father, we recognize that it's your intent that we rub the devil's nose in his defeat every day that we're alive. Just by living the truth of the word. I thank you, Father, for these people that you've given us. Their desire for the word and the truth. Their desire to grow and mature spiritually. To live the truth in love before the world. Father, I pray that you would send people across our paths that we can help, that we can be a blessing to, that we can do the work of the ministry before so that the body increases and your plan is accomplished. I pray also, Father, that you would knit together our hearts in love, that we would set aside our disagreements, our petty differences, that we would maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and that we would learn to work together like never before. We pray these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus, knowing that we're praying your will. So we thank you, Holy Spirit, for your help, supernatural help, to bring about that which the Father intended. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. I want to encourage you to do something this week that might be a little different. And that is, I want you to consider yourself on assignment to find somebody this week that you can be a blessing to. To find somebody this week that you can do the ministry, the work of the ministry for. Maybe something big, maybe getting somebody saved, maybe something little, just helping them out in some way that, that only you and they know about. I don't know. doesn't matter to me what it is. But find something with someone that you can do the work of God for. Will you do that? I promise you, if you will, next week will be different. You'll be different. You'll start establishing a pattern that you'll never want to break. And the church will grow. I'm not talking about numbers. I don't care about numbers. 
I don't care how big we are. Care how big we are, how small we are. God's going to pay the bills either way. Doesn't matter to me. Sometimes smaller crimes are easier to deal with than bigger ones. I don't care. It's not my business. Jesus said he'd build the church. He didn't say I'd build it. He didn't even say I'd build it in his name. He said he'd build it. So I'm not talking about increase like that. If that happens, fine. But that's not my purpose. My purpose is for you to grow. And the way for you to grow is to live the truth in love before somebody else. Amen? Amen. Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good. good. And his mercy endures forever. forever. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us tonight if you can.